Can I say this? The podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. Hello everyone and uh, welcome to uh, our talk with uh, Joey Xia. Hong Kong enjoys a special status, having developed independently of China and everything but foreign affairs and defence since 1997, when it passed over from the British government back into the hands of the People's Republic of China. This means that in the past more than 20 years, Hong Kong has been able to maintain its own traditions, value and even a different legal system. Most distinct of all these differences is its parliament, inherited from the British, which meant that Hong Kong was a shining light of hope for democracy in the Far East. In 2019, worries that China was attempting to jeopardise Hong Kong's independence arose when plans were made to allow extradition from the region to China. These worries culminated in the vast Hong Kong protests that were witnessed globally. The backlash resulted in amendments to the bill, yet nonetheless the bill was passed into law, and for a series of crimes such as foreign collusion, secession and terrorism, citizens of Hong Kong could face extradition to China, and an ever-growing number of people have indeed experienced this now, with many members of the student movements being among the first and most targeted by these new security laws. Among some of the most active students in Hong Kong is Joey Su. She is Vice President of the City University of Hong Kong Students' Union and the former spokesperson of HKIAD, a student advocacy body that represented 12 Hong Kong student unions abroad. Joey is also an associate of Hong Kong Watch, a charity that monitors threats to Hong Kong's basic freedoms, as well as being an advisor to the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. And she has also testified in the United Nations in Geneva and the US Congress Foreign Affairs Committee. It's therefore with great pleasure that we invite Joey on the Dundee Student Free Speech Society to talk about the threat that China now, passes, now poses to Hong Kong's democracy. Hi everyone, this is Joey from Hong Kong, and it is my pleasure to be invited to speak here and nice to meet you everyone. Yeah, so perhaps I will start by introducing myself. So my name is Joey and I'm a student activist from Hong Kong and I'm currently based in United States in Washington DC and working with Hong Kong Watch as well as the Interparliamentary Alliance on, on China. So perhaps I can start by introducing myself and also to share with you all my experience of like how did I became a student activist and also my first-hand personal experience of traveling in Hong Kong and also my story of why I have left Hong Kong and is currently in the States. So I was born in the United States and I moved to Hong Kong when I was seven years old because my parents and also my family are like very traditional Chinese families and they wanted me to learn Chinese. They wanted me to grow up in an environment where I would, I would be able to be exposed to all the traditional values that they grew up with. So at the age of seven, we moved to Beijing at first. And in Beijing, I stayed for six months. But then my grandparents and also my other family members felt like, well, with the situation in Beijing, she might not be able to grow up in a, in a society where she can express herself freely, where she might be able to be also exposed to all these Western values and culture. So after six months in Beijing, we decided to, they decided to bring me to Hong Kong. And ever since then, I stayed in Hong Kong. I spent my childhood and also my teenage years in Hong Kong. And also I studied in the City University of Hong Kong. And that was also the time when I became a student activist. And actually the, 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 
the, the reason why I became a city activist in Hong Kong is pretty much an accident and very different from the reason why the other people like Joshua Wong, like Anna Chow became a city activist. At the very beginning, it was my friend who, who was who was have the have the intention to stand for the student union and to stand for the student union election, but then he haven't got enough cabinet members to stand the election together with him. So without a cabinet standing for the election, the seats were vacant, and then we have to nominate some students to to build up the vacancies. And at that time, my friend approached me, and he, and then he said. Well, Joey, do you mind or have you ever considered being a vice president of my cabinet? And because I felt like you would make a very good, you would make a very good candidate because you have always been very keen on social issues. You are passionate about organizing like campus activities that would help raise the awareness among students to Social, social issues and also about the issues happening inside of my university. And actually at the very beginning, I said no, because the ultimate, I mean, the original plan for me in my college is to spend time on playing, to spend time on meeting new friends and also to simply spend time on having fun. So I said no at first, but then my friend kept asking me, he convinced me and he talked to me so many times. And then in the end, I said yes, because one thing he, he said very, that was very moving and very touching is that, well, you see the situation in Hong Kong is getting worse. So when you have the chance of making a change, why don't you? So because of, because of this, I, I eventually nodded and I said, well, okay, I will join you. And so I was nominated to be the external vice president of my student union in June 2019, right before the whole pro-democracy struggle in Hong Kong started. So that is basically the experience of me becoming a student activist in Hong Kong and also the reason why I have taken up the role. So very soon after I became the vice president of my student union, the pro-democracy struggle in Hong Kong broke out. And then, and ever since then, I started participating in the organization of grassroots activities, including protests, rallies, seminars sharing and, and 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 all the other activities that help sustain the pro democracy struggle in Hong Kong. And also in August 2019, I founded the HAIAD alongside several other student union leaders, where we started getting involved in international advocacy for Hong Kong. We have been flying around speaking to parliamentarians across the globe to talk about Hong Kong to try to encourage them to support Hong Kong. So that is basically my experience and also the reasons why I have became a student leader in Hong Kong. And the story of Hong Kong is also also very unique in a sense that there is no other regions or cities in the world that actually belongs to a very strong country that belongs to a very strong superpower in the world, but then also runs under a whole completely different governmental structure. But then that is what makes Hong Kong very unique. And also that is also what made Hong Kong a special city in a lot of people's hearts. And actually Hong Kong has been a colon and Hong Kong has been a colony of the British government for 99 years. And during the colonial period, 
we were very heavily influenced and also affected by all these Western values of democracy, of human rights, and also freedom. And during the colonial period, we had developed our own governmental structure, our electoral system, and also all these social norms in Hong Kong based on all these Western values and also with the respect of these elements of Hong Kong. And democracy, human rights and freedom eventually became the core values of Hong Kong and also laid the foundation of Hong Kong's development to becoming a world-renowned, prosperous international financial center. In 1984, the British government together with the Chinese government signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which they agreed that in 1997, they will be handing Hong Kong back to the Chinese government. And at that time, the world has already realized that there is a very huge difference between mainland China and also between Hong Kong. But then at that time, the world still believed that perhaps with providing assistance to China to develop their economy, with providing assistance to China to develop their own, their own domestic affairs, they might be willing to work on the democratic developments in, in China next. So at that time, the world chose to help China to get into the WTO. The world chose to help China by providing a lot of like financial assistance to China, by getting China into a lot of very important international organizations. And actually, Hong Kongers also felt the same. We did realize that there are a lot of differences between our own city and mainland China in terms of culture, in terms of economy, in terms of like governance and also in terms of politics. But then we were not so worried because a lot of our previous generations actually had the background of living in mainland China. They had a lot of ties and very close ties with their relatives, their friends, and also with the culture in mainland China. So at that time, Hong Kongers were not so worried about being handed over to the Chinese government. We were not so worried about becoming a city that belongs to China to, to continue to be governed under the one country, two systems framework. But then very soon in 1919, in 1989, the June 4th Tiananmen massacre happened. And Hong get to realize that, wow, we, we, we absolutely have a different set of beliefs when it comes to democracy, freedom, and also human rights. And I think at that time, a lot of Hong Kongers started to be worried about the future of themselves. And also the, they have started to become very worried and uncertain about the future of Hong Kong as well. And in 1990s, the, the Chinese government introduced the basic law, which will be implemented in Hong Kong after the hangover. And in the basic law, they promised Hong Kong a high degree of autonomy. They promised Hong Kong to be governed under, um, under the separation of powers. They promised to be governing Hong Kong with rule of law and everything. And that restores some level of confidence in, in the hearts of the Hong Kong people. But then we still have a very slight sense of concerns towards the, towards the Chinese government. And in 1997, when Hong Kong has been officially handed over from the British government to the Chinese government, many Hong Kongers chose to immigrate to other countries because 
they felt like the uncertainties to Hong Kong are too risky. They felt like it might not be the best thing for them to do to continue to stay in Hong Kong. So at that time, they decided to leave Hong Kong, to leave the city, and to immigrate to to another country. So that is that was the first round of like immigration phenomenon happened to Hong Kong. And very soon after the handover in 2023, the Chinese government, alongside the Hong Kong government, introduced the Article 23 in Hong Kong, where they will be prohib- prohibiting people from committing treason or any other crimes against the against national security or might pose a threat to the government. And at that time, thousands of Hong, thousands of hundreds of Hong Kong people took onto the streets and eventually with with such a intense pressure from the civic society, the Hong Kong government decided to revoke the article number 23. And we felt like, well, by participating in social in, in civil disobedience by participating in social movements, we, we might still be able to protest against the government. We might still be able to retain the way that we lived before uh, the hangover from the British government to the Chinese government. But then with the years of, of Beijing's further encroachment on, on Hong Kong's core values, we soon discovered that that is not possible. In 2012, the Hong Kong government introduced um, an education reform in Hong Kong, where they want to be implementing all these national education curriculums in Hong Kong, where they will be requiring primary school kids, they will be requiring secondary school kids to learn everything about China, to learn everything about the Chinese Communist Party. And at that time, Hong Kong people, especially our students, felt like, well, this is no difference with the brainwashing education curriculum that was implemented in China. And this is encroaching all the core values that we have been growing up with in Hong Kong. So at that time, again, Hong Kongers went to the streets. We occupied, uh, we, we occupied Admiralty, we protested, and eventually the Hong Kong government took down the, took down the reforms on, on the national education curriculum. And at that time, we felt like, well, we once again succeed and we once again force the government to, to, to take down some policies that we don't like. But then we never realized that that is actually the last time where the government bowed down to us. And that was actually the last time when the government decided to listen to the people. And very soon in 2014, Hong Kongers once again went onto the streets. We participated in another very historic social movement in Hong Kong where the Umbrella Revolution broke out. And we continued our fight to demand for an authentic democratic universal suffrage where we will be allowed to elect our own leaders, to elect our own chief executives that will be leading the whole city. But then the government did not bow down, bow down to us this time. They decided to move on with their own way of governance. They decided still not to grant Hong Kong people the promise that they made to us regarding the universal suffrage, which will allow us to vote for our own chief executive with, with a vote for, for every people. And very soon, the kind of encroachment from Beijing, the kind of like encroachment on our core values, on our basic freedoms and rights continued in Hong Kong. And in 2016, it was the first time when the Beijing government decided to, to disqualify several elected lawmakers in Hong Kong. 
and they decided to give their own explanations regarding the basic law. So that basically means that all the interpretations or the definitions of the basic law are actually defined by not the people of Hong Kong, not by any legal documents, but then by the people who are in Beijing who who are trying to govern the people of Hong Kong. And at that time, Hong Kongers felt like the room for us to continue to express our own political beliefs, to continue to 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 fight for freedom and democracy is becoming smaller and smaller. And we are becoming more restricted in terms of like our basic freedoms and, and also rights. But then we never realized that a lot more severe suppression is coming. And in 2019, in February, the Hong Kong government decided to introduce an extradition bill amendment, which will allow the Hong Kong government to extradite anybody in Hong Kong or any foreigners who are who are in Hong Kong to, to, to be extradited to mainland China to stand trials. And Hong Kongers took that as a very direct and great damage to all the core values. And we felt like with the situation in mainland China, we felt like it is very, very unsafe for us to be to be to be put at to be put at the risk of being extradited to mainland China. So in June 2019, so many Hong Kong people took onto the streets and we eventually began our pro-democracy struggle that lasted until today. And throughout 2019 and 2020, with so many protests and also rallies going on in Hong Kong, we actually witnessed the kind of like very severe encroachment from the Beijing government. We saw that the Beijing government is now trying to encroach and to and to and to and to take complete control over Hong Kong by police brutality, by making use of the governmental structure, by disqualifying elected lawmakers from their seats, by disqualifying any pro-democracy political figures in Hong Kong from standing elections. And and we actually, we actually realized that how worse the situation is becoming. But then we still try to sustain the movement. We still try to fight until our very last breath because we felt like these core values are the fundamental elements that created the prosperities of Hong Kong. So we are willing to give up everything we have to. We are willing to sacrifice ourselves in defense of all these very precious values for Hong Kongers. But then in, in light of the resistance of the people of Hong Kong, in light of our in light of our determination, the Chinese government and also the Hong Kong government decided that they will suppress us with a more severe legislation, which is the national security law. And that came into effect and was implemented in Hong Kong in July 2020. And as stated in the national security law, or the basically everything you say in Hong Kong or everything you do in Hong Kong that that go against the wills of the Beijing government could lead you to being charged under suppression, secession, treason, or colluding with foreign forces. And all these criminal offenses are 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 potentially leading you to ten years or lifetime in prison. And that really is the last nail on the coven of, of Hong Kong's democracy and also of the freedoms that Hong Kongers once once enjoyed during during the colonial period or during the during the very beginning stage of the 1997. And 
after the imposition of the national security law, we see how encroached our freedoms, our rights are are being deprived. We, from all aspects in Hong Kong, across education to press, from internet to business, we see how increasingly influenced are we by the repressive climate after the imposition of the national security law. And also with the executive branch continued and also completely controlled by the Beijing government, Hong Kong people once thought, once thought of fighting back by standing for election. So in July 2020, I mean, exactly during the period when the national security law came into effect in Hong Kong, we still have a lot of pro-democracy activists. We have a lot of pro-democracy political political figures trying to organize and to participate in a democratic primaries in Hong Kong, where we try to secure more seats in the legislative council. And, and in that way, we can we might be able to fight back to the Beijing government. But then we see that what Beijing what Beijing's response is to is to completely cancel the election. And they're not willing to give the pro-democracy voices in Hong Kong any chance of of disobeying them. And so after they cancelled the election and and it and it actually proves that we, we have no we no longer have a way to fight in within institutions. And also with the implementation of the national security law, we also have no ways to organize any political activities in Hong Kong anymore. We can no longer participate in protests, rallies, assemblies, or any kind of like memorial events that simply mark the anniversaries of Hong Kong's pro-democracy struggles. All of these very peaceful, very, all of these very peaceful political gatherings and activities in Hong Kong are now banned and prohibited. And this really signifies how serious the encroachment and also the restrictions in Hong Kong became. And we also see that very recently we see the Beijing government, aside from the national security law, they continue to suppress the people of Hong Kong. They continue to tighten the room for our political expressions by by unseating legislators from their from from the legislative chamber. We see that they have been arresting more and more political figures in Hong Kong under the national security law. We see that they continue to prohibit any kinds of like disobedience in the society. And we also see that very recently they are reintroducing the education reform in Hong Kong, where they will be again requiring students and also, uh, I mean, including primary school kids and also college students to, to recite and to memorize all these issues and also all these criminal offenses under the national security legislation. So we see that Hong Kong's situation has been rapidly deteriorated ever since the pro-democracy struggle in 2019. And also more obviously after the implementation of the national security legislation. And given the situation in Hong Kong, we see that the international society has been taking actions in response to the Chinese Communist Party's human rights atrocities in Hong Kong. We see that the international community has been trying to defend Hong Kong in some ways, for example, by uh, implementing legislation in the US, for example, with the UK providing BNO policies for Hong Kongers, which will eventually lead to a permanent, which will eventually lead to a pathway to 
permanent residency. We also see that Canada, Australia, and also a lot of other countries have been issuing statements condemning the behaviors of the Chinese Communist Party. But then, to be honest, that does little help to the people who are still inside of Hong Kong because they can no longer leave Hong Kong with so many activists, protesters, political figures arrested under the national security law under names of rioting, illegal assembly, they have no way to escape from Hong Kong anymore because the Chinese Communist Party is not only charging them with all these ridiculous and baseless criminal offenses, but then also prohibiting them and also banning them from simply leaving the, from simply leaving the city. They're not allowing them to go anywhere. And we can actually see that all the pro-democracy voices in Hong Kong are now either behind the bars or are going to face very serious criminal offenses very soon. And the others, for example, like me, are forced into exile, where we have to fight outside of Hong Kong to continue our struggle in terms of international advocacy, in terms of continue to raise the awareness uh, from the international community on Hong Kong's issues or to continue to advocate for Hong Kong and to keep Hong Kong in the vision of the international countries. But then that cannot do any direct help to the people of Hong Kong. What we are doing right now is to, it's to encourage the countries to continue to pressurize the Chinese government, to continue to put pressure on the Chinese government and to hold them accountable for all these human rights atrocities. But that really takes a long time for us to do so. And I think Hong Kong, the people in Hong Kong are really in a plight right now because Hong Kong is becoming more and more like a, an ordinary city of the mainland China where we no longer have the freedom to free speech. We no longer enjoy the right to participate in political activities. We no longer enjoy the freedom of expressing our our own political beliefs. And that is really, really serious. And aside from all these encroachments and also all these atrocities going on in Hong Kong, we are also seeing that the Chinese Communist Party has been continuously extending its arms to the other countries. For example, we see how the Chinese Communist Party has been violating the trade agreements signed with Australia. They have been making use of their very gigantic economic market to put pressure on all these countries that have been trying to stand up against the Chinese Communist Party for its human rights abuses. And with China becoming more and more aggressively in, in terms of like expansion and also in terms of like human rights abuses across the globe, we think that it is a very crucial time for us to unite and to coordinate a joint effort to stand up against the Chinese Communist Party. Because in that way, I mean, in that way, that is actually the only possible way. And that is the only possible thing that we could do to hold China accountable for all its human rights atrocities. And that is actually the only possible way for us to defend Hong Kong. Because without enough international pressure, without a coordinated effort in terms of decreasing our economic dependency on the Chinese market, the Chinese Communist Party will not be working on its own democratic development. It will not be working towards the towards respecting Hong Kong's core values. And that is also why we have seen so many 
people who are forced into exile from Hong Kong continuously participating and getting involved in international advocacy and also to continue to connect with people around the globe because we believe that only by raising awareness in other countries and only by encouraging the people who are outside of Hong Kong to stand up against the Chinese Communist Party together. That is the only way for us to defend Hong Kong and to prevent Hong Kong from being further encroached by the Chinese Communist Party. So I think this is a very precious opportunity for me to connect with you all who are in Scotland and also for our audiences who might be watching in the UK or across the globe. It is very crucial for us to stand shoulder to shoulder and to coordinate our efforts together in terms of standing up to the Chinese Women's Party because that would be the only thing and only and the only effective thing that we can do to prevent Hong Kong and also the other places from being encroached and also abused by the Chinese Women's Party. So I'm very thankful for the opportunity today and I'm looking forward to all your questions. Well, thank you very much for that, Joey. And it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on as well. Uh, no need to thank us. That was a that was a great talk, and and really enlightening. There's a lot a lot in there, um, and I'm sure we'll be able to address a lot of these points because it's a really complicated uh, issue. Actually, I think the issue of, of democracy and freedom in Hong Kong now. So hopefully, we'll be able to address all of these these uh, necessary points through the Q and A. Um, for anyone who's in the audience right now and isn't aware, the option to ask a question is available uh, up in the right hand side, the top right hand side corner of your screen. You should have an option to click on the Q&A and ask a question. Um, the first question we have, um, I think is a really good question because it addresses some of the points that you brought up in your talk actually, um, because, because Hong Kong has had this issue consistently um, over the years, um, I suppose it's it's this is the most recent um, battle with the Chinese government. I suppose they've had, but it's something that's uh, occurred mul on multiple occasions. And as Hong Kong uh, was once a, um, a a colony of the British Empire, and there were other Far Eastern territories such as Singapore, who were also um, colonies which are independent. This this uh, member member of the audience is asking you if you think that independence is the best option for Hong Kong going forward now, uh, if there should be a push for independence for Hong Kong. Well, I think independence is a lot of is is something that a lot of Hong Kong people, especially the younger generations, are thinking about, and that is also a goal for many of the Hong Kongers right now because. When we were being handed over by the British government to the Chinese government, the Chinese government made its promise of governing Hong Kong under the structure of one country, two systems, where they will be respecting all the core values of Hong Kong. They will be ruling of law in Hong Kong. But then we obviously see that the Chinese government is not fulfilling its promises. It has been violating the Sino-British Declaration. It has not been ruling Hong Kong. It has not been giving Hong Kong a high degree of autonomy as promised in the basic law and also in the declaration. So I think with all these violations committed by the Chinese Communist Party and also with all these examples that we see that the Chinese Communist Party continuously violates human rights in, in regions, not only including Hong Kong, but also in 
regions like in Xinjiang, like regions in Tibet and also across the globe. I think a lot of Hong Kong people are losing our confidence in terms of continuing to be ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. We also have lost our confidence in terms of like believing in this one country, two system structure. So I think that is also one of the most important reasons why a lot of us and a lot more of us have been increasingly thinking about whether independence might be the best route for Hong Kong ahead, because only in that way we can escape from the tyranny. We can, only by gaining independence, we could no longer be ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. And in that way, that might be the only option for us to be ruled under, uh, under principles of rule of law, with respect to democracy and also freedom as well as human rights. So I think to a lot of us, independence might be the best option, but then practically speaking, it might not be so easily achieved in, in the near future because given that China is still one of the most strongest superpowers in the world, given that China has actually has a very strong control over the international economic market and also with having so many countries on its side because because of the very gigantic economic benefits, I think it would be difficult for Hong Kong to gain independence in the near future. So I think with all these practical concerns, although independence might be the might be the ultimate goal for a lot of us, we're now fighting for the promise of the Chinese Communist Party to to fulfill what they made in the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which is a high degree of autonomy of Hong Kong. And we hope that in a short term, we hope that the Chinese Communist Party can be restoring what they promised to Hong Kong, which is to give Hong Kong our own high level of autonomy to real and to 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 really elect our own leaders to rule our own city. And I think that would be the goal for Hong Kongers right now. I think um, Lee's trying to ask a question, but I think you're on mute, Lee, if you want to unmute Yeah, yourself. sorry about that. Um, I think what um, our next question that we have ties directly in with, with your answer there in terms of, um, do you think that the West and organisations such as the UN have a duty to intervene and defend Hong Kong's democracy, or do you think it's something that should be more conducted on a local level? I think it is really important that the that international organizations, for example, like the UN, interfere with the with the issues going on in Hong Kong. Because as I have mentioned, that the Sino-British Joint Declaration was signed by the British government and also the Chinese government, but then it was also ratified in the UN, and it is actually an international document that binds the Chinese Communist Party from from fulfilling its promises and that it made in its declaration to Hong Kongers. So when it comes to violation regarding these international documents and also declarations, I think it is a responsibility for every country that have been involved in the ratification and also for all the countries that actually encouraged the, the signatory of the Sino-British Joint Declaration to also involve in holding China accountable. So I think international organizations like the UN and also the WTO and also all the other international organizations should be participating in terms of like holding China accountable for all these human rights atrocities that have been committed in Hong Kong because it is not only about 
Hong Kong ourselves, but then also about all the, but also about how China is going to respect and also to play by an international rule base all this. So I think it is really important that we all stand up against all, all stand up against all these kind of violations. I mean, and it is not only about the violations committed by the Chinese Communist Party, but then it is also about when another country is also happening to violate all these kind of international documents. We, we should all be able to stand up against this because this is an ultimate destruction to our international rule-based order. And it's really important that we uphold these orders and also to play by the rules with respect of our international order. We have another question actually that's sort of along the same lines of this question from the audience and, um, and, and so I'd like to follow up um, to your answer with this question. Um, looking at, so I mean you've suggested that, that the UN and other institutions should play a part in holding China accountable. Um, from your point of view, from coming from Hong Kong and then You've moved to America now and you're living in Washington. Looking, this, this question is asking you, looking at the West and its democracies, do you think that the democr democratic values are being upheld? Uh, looking especially at the phenomena like uh, a big chunk of the population of America not accepting the result of an election, whether that be uh, the election of Donald Trump or of Joe Biden in both directions, uh, and the emergence of things like cancel culture. Do you think that Western societies are doing their part in upholding uh, the value of democracy locally here in the West? I think democracy is definitely in decline no matter in the Asian countries or in the Western society, like with the coup happening in, in Burma, with the protests going on in Belarus and also with the election disputes here in the US. I think it is obvious that over 2020 we see democracy worldwide in decline. And I think it's really crucial that we always is that we always uphold and also remember that how valuable all these values of democracy, freedom and human rights are whenever I mean no matter that is about an election or whether that is about like everyday governance or everyday politics. And I think even with so many domestic, I mean, for, use the United States as an example, even though there are so many domestic issues on the plate right now, even with so many domestic like divisions ongoing here in the States, I think it is still very important for us to stand up for those people who are under suppression in another country or in another region, because democracy is not about a value that is only that should only be upheld in the States or in the UK or in the Western society, but then it is a value that should be respected by the people in every country, in every corner of the world. So I think it is very crucial for us to always remember about how valuable it is and also to stand up for for all these values when it is when it is under when it is under encroachment. And I mean, for example, the Chinese Communist Party have been encroaching all these values, have been destroying all these values, and it is actually going to cause a very great economic loss to the countries who are willing to stand up against 
the Chinese Communist Party when it comes to human rights abuses. For example, with the Canadian Parliament recognizing vegan genocide, with the with the U.S. government recognizing vegan genocide, it is really going to cause us a lot of economic loss because China is definitely going to is going to respond to us by restricting our like trading ties and also economic ties with the Chinese with the Chinese market. But then after all, we still have to remember that these values of democracy, human rights, and also freedom are what make our country strong and also what made our country prosperous. And I think all all of us should be remembering all these values. And when it comes under threat, I think it is an obligation for us to stand up against it. Uh, on that note, what would you say to the counter argument uh, against the Hong Kong independence movement or the movement to stop Chinese oppression uh, in terms of like, would you would you validate in any way the argument that China should have the right to change what it wants, given that Hong Kong is part of its territory? Well, I think governments have the right to make use of their executive powers. But then obviously what the Chinese Communist Party has been doing in mainland China and also in Hong Kong are very obvious and very clear violations of human rights. And when it comes to human rights, it would not be about sovereignty of a country or it would not be a domestic governance problem. It is actually a universal problem because human rights and freedom should not be values compromised for the stability of a country. And it is everybody's right and also freedom to express our own political views, no matter that is going with the government's wills or not, or whether that is going in, obe in disobedience to the government's wills or not. I think when these values are under threat, as I have just said, it should be, it should be interfered by international organizations and all the people in other countries who are enjoying these rights and also these freedoms should be, should be standing up to protect them. Thank you for that. Um, we have another question that jumps up a little bit, but it's quite an interesting question. Um, so, so we'll just move forward with this. Um, someone from the audience is asking you, do you think that the Chinese government might use illegal methods um, such as manipulating social media um, or corruption to ensure that uh, Beijing's control over Hong Kong is maintained? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, the exercise of propaganda machines have always been a very important part of the Chinese Communist Party's tactic in terms of like controlling and maintaining the maintaining the stability in mainland China and also in Hong Kong. Like for example, when the pro democracy movement in Hong Kong broke out in 2019, we have seen a lot of misinformation circulating online and also a lot of fake news being like, a lot of fake news coming out from all these pro-Beijing media companies, which have been like spreading false information about the about the Hong Kong protests. They have been accusing and also putting blames on Hong Kong protesters for the instability. They have been like branding Hong Kong protesters as separatists and terrorists and everything. And the Chinese government has also been doing this in not only Hong Kong or mainland China, but then also in a lot of other countries. For example, they have this. Uh, GC, I, I think they have this like Chinese state-owned media company in the UK, which is very recently 
banned by the UK government that have been circulating all this kind of like forest information, misinformation that puts false accusations on the government and also on the British people. So I think this has always been a part of the broader Chinese Communist Party's propaganda campaign. And I think this really requires us a lot of efforts in terms of like, how do we prevent this kind of like forest information from the Chinese Communist Party? How do we prevent all these kind of like infiltration from the Chinese Communist Party with our with their very massive propaganda machines? And I think this is a very important question and also issues that have that have to be tackled by our own local governments in the due course because this is really infiltrating into every aspect of our society and have been posing a very great effect and, and have been doing a lot of help to the Chinese Communist Party when it comes to our ideological battles. So I think, yeah, this is a really crucial topic to be discussed. Uh, in terms of going forward with the situation, do you think that the pressure is just going to continue to increase on the Hong Kong government by China? Or do you think that with enough Western intervention and sort of outcry that there might be a turn in the tide? Well, I think the Chinese government has been pretty determined in suppressing the pro-democracy struggle in Hong Kong because we have seen how strong the international reaction has been after the after the uh, extradition amendment bill was introduced, after the national security law has been introduced. So, for example, we have after the imposition of the national security law, we have actually organized an international joint signatory letter to the Chinese and also to the Hong Kong government with signatories from over over the 700 of parliamentaries across the globe. And we have also seen a lot of statements and also a lot of the sanctions coming out from the US government and also from a lot of governments worldwide. But then we don't see that the Chinese government has been like showing their intention to revoke the national security law in Hong Kong or they have been suspending the arrest going on in Hong Kong. But then we still see that they have been recently introducing the education reform curriculums. They have been continuing the arrest in Hong Kong and also with the potential disqualification of Hong Kong. I think that actually signifies how determined the Chinese Communist Party is in terms of like continuing to suppress Hong Kong. And also with the other, a lot of like ongoing interference by the Chinese Communist Party to the other countries in the world. I think I don't really see the possibility of the Chinese Communist Party like turning the ties or, 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 or pausing their suppression of Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. But then, I, yeah, I think that is also one of the most important reasons why we have to continue to pressurize the government also to think about what kind of legislations or policies that we can adopt or formulate in terms of like preventing all these kind of like encroachments to our own country. So I think that is really crucial. Uh, on that note, um, what would you say that we can do out uh, in the West and and yeah, in the West in terms of drawing attention to, how, uh, to Hong Kong's struggle? Like, is there anything outside of just sharing posts and telling people and trying to pressure the government? Like, what would what would you say would be the best approach? Well, I think there has been a lot of international attention on the Hong Kong issue, but then what really lacks is the uh, a, a deeper understanding into Hong Kong's history and also Hong Kong's culture. So I think what we, the people outside of Hong Kong, can be doing is to continue to spread a word and also to 
really get to know more about Hong Kong's historical background and also Hong Kong's local culture. And I think that is really, really, really crucial in terms of like sustaining Hong Kong's pro-democracy struggle or to maintain or to preserve Hong Kong's unique culture. And I think in when it comes to like international advocacy, which is really, which is pretty much focused on like governmental policies, I think the attention from governments have been very strong and have been continuous. But then what really is in lack is the is concrete actions taken by governments. We have seen a lot of like very, very strong condemnations and also very strong statements with very aggressive vocabularies from different governments. But then we don't really see a lot of concrete actions made by the different governments. We have seen several rounds of sanctions imposed by the US government. We have seen the BNO policy introduced by the British government. But then that is actually what, that is all we have done for Hong Kong. So I think it really requires concrete actions and also joint efforts from different governments, including for example, like Canada, Australia, and also the other countries in the Western society, as well as the in the Asian society to really take actions to to, to hold China accountable. For example, to start by in the short term, it would be the most effective for us to impose targeted sanctions on Chinese and Hong Kong officials. And in the long term, it really requires us to decrease our market dependency on Chinese economic markets. So I think attention has been, has been very strong and very continuous, but then really what we need is a concrete action from different governments in the world. That's a really interesting point, and we have um, we have multiple questions from the audience asking questions about what we can do in the West. Um, though I think maybe they're wondering, as a, I, I mean, a lot of the this is citizens in the West who are aware of um, the way that Hong Kong has been oppressed, and maybe they're also aware about the way that the Uyghurs have been oppressed and the South Mongolians and. Uh, the Taiwanese and so uh, these sort of um, subcultures around the periphery of China. Um, uh, maybe as as citizens and as con you've already addressed it as a, a little bit, but as as Western nations, what can we do um, to help Hong Kong as individuals and in Western nations? What can we do? I mean, would you suggest it's taking political action, taking uh, up these issues with our local MPs and contacting them and asking them to do something about it? Well, I think the one very important thing that every individual can be doing and should be doing to help the people of Hong Kong is to really to develop our grassroots connections within the neighborhood or within the community because only by developing those kind of like very personal and also very, oh, I'm sorry, and also very intimate personal relationship and connection, we can really get people to be concerned and also to pay attention to the developments in Hong Kong. And I think by doing that, it is actually the most effective and also the long, the most long lasting way for us to, to sustain the kind of attention on Hong Kong issues. And also with so many Hong Kong protesters and political figures being forced into exile in different countries, I think it would be a good thing for us to do to to assist their integration into our local communities and also to help with the establishment of different Hong Kong diaspora communities. And I think that would be one of the easiest and also one of the most important things that we can do to help Hong Kong, to help the people of Hong Kong. 
And in terms of like political advocacy, I think it is crucial that we also voice out for the people of Hong Kong and also to bring the Hong Kong issue to attention when it comes to communication or interactions with our local MPs and also politicians. Because what really matters is the voice of their voters. And I think with 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 a voter actually who belongs to their constituents to voice out for Hong Kong and also to bring the issue to their attention, I think it, that would be a really, really important and effective thing that we can do for keeping Hong Kong issue at the attention and also in the vision of the international community. And ultimately, I think there is no shortcut to, to defend Hong Kong or there is no shortcut for us to, to, to counter the China challenge. So I think it is crucial for us to also raise awareness and to encourage our, our local politicians to, to formulate and also to participate in the, in, the, in, in the construction of a more comprehensive and also a more proactive China policy to really, on, the, on, on one hand, to prevent infiltration into our, to, into our local community, and then on the other hand, to hold China accountable for its human rights atrocities that have been committed in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, and also in other places across the globe. Outside of the Hong Kong struggle, there is one more autonomous uh, special administrative region in China, uh, besides Hong Kong, which is Macau. What would you say in terms of what's happening there uh, regarding Chinese interference? Because obviously there's been a lot of attention drawn to Hong Kong uh, internationally, but I, I don't think that people, that many people outside of the region would know about uh, other struggles going on. Yeah, so the stories between Hong Kong and Macau are pretty different because like there have been a lot of legislations passed already in Macau several like a few years ago about restricting people's expression of their free wills and also uh, restricting people from participating in political activities. And the situation in Macau is definitely more severe than the situation is right now in Hong Kong. And I would say comparing to Hong Kong, Macau is becoming more like a mainland city that belongs that is under complete control by the Chinese Communist Party. And there have been like a few cases of activists and also political figures in Macau trying to express their wills, which goes against the wills of the Macau government, and also the Beijing government. But then obviously there the consequences was being arrested and also to put and, and also were being put behind the bars. So I think what we are facing right now are pretty similar, but then obviously the case in Macau is more serious. And I think what we can do for the people in Macau and also similarly to the people of Hong Kong is really to stand up against the atrocities that the Chinese Communist Party have been committing because all these atrocities that they have been committing, that doesn't matter whether, whether they have been doing that in Hong Kong or Macau or anywhere else in the world, whenever they have been doing that, we should be able to stand up and also to stand against that. Absolutely, 100%, I would agree with that. Um, we have another question. It's, it's quite a recent and, and sort of contextual question because it applies to what's going on in the world right now. And we have someone asking that, do you think perceptions towards the way that um, China's governance runs have changed in the West after coronavirus because many Western countries have followed 
the Chinese style of dealing with coronavirus, which is quite a lot of um, oppressive restrictions on personal freedom. And in the West, the China has in many cases been applauded as dealing with it very successfully. So do you think that given the um, apparent, the perception of success in China with dealing with coronavirus, it might soften people in the West to these ideas of um, uh, sort of restrictive governance that, that China has in all areas of life, not just coronavirus. Well, I think the outbreak of the coronavirus definitely affected how people view the Chinese Communist Party. But then I don't think that is in a possible that is in a positive way of how successful they have been handling the outbreak of coronavirus. But then that is about how how the Chinese government have been lying about the outbreak of the coronavirus at the very beginning of the whole pandemic. And I think that really have made a lot of people across the globe who were affected by the outbreak of coronavirus that the Chinese Communist Party have been lying about this. And they have been also been lying about a lot of other issues that have been going on in mainland China and also going on, especially in the Xinjiang region. And I think this really made a lot of people across the globe realize how how a tyranny the Chinese Communist Party has been. And I think this definitely happened an alerting and also alarming call for a lot of people who have been actually affected by this pandemic outbreak. And I think it is crucial for us to really realize that China has not only been lying about this coronavirus, but then also about this human rights atrocities in Xinjiang and also about all these kind of like great internet firewalls constructed to prevent the communication between the people in China and also from the international community. So I think, of course, how the way China has been controlling and also like restricting, and I mean, the way China has been controlling the coronavirus outbreak in some sense might seem successful to a lot of people. But then I think the most crucial thing and lesson that we should be learning from this outbreak is how China has been disrespecting and also lying about about things that really have been going on in China. And it is really crucial for us to get to know and be more willing in terms of like knowing what has been really going on in China. In regards to the Hong Kong situation specifically, uh, what, how, how likely do you think it is that in the next couple of years that the situation will develop positively? Do you think with the international attention on Hong Kong it will have like, and obviously this will have to be continued, but with the current level of attention that there's a positive outlook going forward? I think the suppression is only going, will only be going more severe in Hong Kong because as I have just said, like with such a strong international reaction, we can still see that the Chinese government is not giving up on suppressing the people of Hong Kong. They are still implementing the national security law and actually making use of the national security law to arrest pro-democracy political figures in Hong Kong. So I would say it would only deteriorate, but then the, the pace of the deterioration in Hong Kong really depends on how the international community is going to react. For example, are we still going to simply issue statements condemning the atrocities, atrocities committed by the Chinese government without taking concrete actions? Or are we really going to take concrete actions to impose, for example, sanctions on targeted officials? Are we really going to 
introduce economic sanctions on on like state-owned enterprises that have been so closely tied with the Chinese Communist Party? Are we going to formulate a more a more comprehensive like China policy that really holds China accountable? So I think my expectation would be that Hong Kong situation will only go worse in the upcoming years. But then. In what speed that is going to be worsening really depends on what the reaction might be from the international community. So I think that is also one of the most crucial reasons why I think the international community should really start taking concrete actions to hold China accountable and also to start formulating our own comprehensive China policy to prevent China from further exploiting our international rupees order. This question we have um, brings us a little bit of a circle back, but I think it's an interesting circle back to one of the first questions we asked you, and it was about Hong Kong's independence. Um, because you, you, you mentioned that you think that um, Hong Kong, it's a long term goal for Hong Kong for its independence. And this person from the audience is asking you, if you think that Hong Kong has the necessary tools to succeed as an independent country? Well, I would say, I mean, practically, I don't think Hong Kong has the, has really a practical way or a foreseeable way to, to achieve independence. Like, as I have just said, China is now the, one of the strongest superpowers in the world and has very strong economic ties of a lot of countries. And a lot of smaller countries, especially in in Europe and also in Africa, have been very heavily uh, dependent on, on 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 the Chinese Communist Party and also the the very gigantic Chinese market. And even for a superpower like the U.S., have also been very reliant on resources from China and also relying on the on the on the on the ability to purchase from the chi very gigantic Chinese market. So. With this situation, I don't feel like in a foreseeable future, Hong Kong would be able to achieve independence. But then I would say the spirit that we that we cultivated or have constructed over 2019, 2020 will be passed on. And I believe with this spirit passing on from, from, from generations to generations, I think this would be an ultimate goal for a lot of Hong Kongers. And I would say nothing is impossible. On that note, do you think uh, there's some way for us to shift the economic focus away from China to somewhere like America? Or like, what would be the best approach for this? Because obviously stopping trading with China and importing goods would have this effect. But given the vast dependence on a lot of like countries for China's cheap resources, how do you think you could reasonably convince convince those governments to um, care about this struggle more? Well, I think it would not be it would not be sensible or rational for us to cut economic ties with China at once. But then that have to be done in the long term. For example, to to encourage our own domestic companies to move their manufacturing factories back into our own countries. For example, to shift our 
manufacturing bases from China to the other Asian countries, for example, in Cambodia and India, and also in a lot of other countries, which are also available with cheap labor, with, with cheap resources and also abundant labor. So I think in that terms, we can gradually de decrease our dependency on China. And I think we also have to really emphasize on the principle on ethical and also affordable, like, like, like manufacturing, because we have seen how the Chinese Communist Party has been forcing the Uyghur population in the Xinjiang area to become a forced labor to produce cotton and also to 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 get involved in the manufacturing processes. So I think it is really crucial for us to really uphold our international conventions, which prevents forced labor and also which really promise that all our labors and also manufacturing processes will be ethical. And I think it is crucial also for our own governments to think about how are we going to pull our own domestic companies to come back to our own country and also to construct their manufacturing factories or to move their headquarters back into our own country. So I think that really requires a lot of like policy formulation from our own countries. And that might take a long time, but that would definitely be worth it. Our penultimate question um, from the audience is um, it sort of takes us out and makes us look at things from a little bit larger scale, I suppose, as well. Um, so maybe a good second last question. They're asking you what what are the main attitudes um, of the people who are living in mainland China towards the situation in Hong Kong and maybe other parts of the periphery of China that, that some people see as oppressed? Do the, the people of mainland China see these people as oppressed or, or what, what's their perspective on all of this? I think the attitude is really polarised when it comes to how the people in mainland China see the, the situation in Hong Kong. But then one thing that we are very certain about is that with a very great internet firewall built by the Chinese Women's Party, a lot of people who are inside of mainland China cannot be receiving accurate and also authentic information about the protests in Hong Kong or about the about the things regarding the Chinese Women's Party that are happening in the international community. So I think it would not be fair to judge that they are all hostile to Hong Kongers because that they don't they don't agree with us. I think the very great internet firewall and also censorship imposed by the Chinese Communist Party is also one of the very important elements that we have to take into consideration. I mean, it is undeniable that some of the people in mainland China sees Hong Kongers as separators and also sees us as people who are like imposing a very great national security concern to, to the Chinese government. But then I think there are still a lot of mainland, a lot of people in mainland China who really believes and also wants to uphold the principles of freedom and democracy. And for example, like there has been an app that has been going very popular among like Hong Kong people, Taiwanese, and also very recently in the society that is called Clubhouse. And actually on Clubhouse, we have seen a lot of people who are inside of mainland China sharing their thoughts and also trying to understand what has really been going on in Hong Kong. So I would say, although the attitude has been very polarized, well, I do see a hope of the people in mainland China going towards and also to push for and democratic development in mainland China. And I think with that, I think, I think we can try our very best and also to make use of every opportunity to really 
to spread the word about Hong Kong situation and also to cultivate the seed of a possible democratic development in the future. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, there's been a lot of interesting questions um, and very enlightening answers, I would say. The last question we have is a question we ask to everyone who we invite on as a free speech society. And the question would be, um, why does free speech matter to you, Joey? You mean, what does free speech mean to me? Yeah, and what does it mean? Why does it matter? Particularly in the context of Hong Kong and China's oppression. Why, why, why does free speech matter to you? Because we're trying to promote free speech on campus. We're trying to make people aware of the benefits of free speech and the necessity of it. So to you, why is free speech so important? I think being a student activist in Hong Kong definitely brought me a lot of very unique experiences and also a lot of very unique inspirations. And I think as a Hong Konger and also as a protesters who actually participated in the protests from 2019 and also 2020, like after witnessing all these police brutalities going on in Hong Kong, with my years spent in Hong Kong, witnessing how Hong Kong has transferred from um, from a rather free society into a, into a society almost completely controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. And from seeing people still being able to express their own political beliefs to now that my friends have to censor themselves and dare not to say anything on Facebook that goes against the will of the Chinese Communist Party. I think this kind of like personal experience definitely inspired me a lot. And I think from this personal experience, I get to realize how important the freedom of speech is and how important it is to us to to defend our face our right to free speech when it comes when it is understood because that is the one of the fundamental values that protect us that allows us to express ourselves freely and to and that is one of the most important elements that encourage the improvement of a society so i think that is very important so i think that is one of the reasons why i think it is so important for me to make use of every opportunity to do, to defend free speech and also to promote the value of of, of freedom of expression. Uh, and that will bring us to the end of our talk. Thank you very much, Joey, uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. And especially thank you for promoting freedom of speech and expression in your own life. It's um, obviously very, it's very good for us to have someone like you on who's an actual uh, example, like an example of someone who is enacting their freedom of speech in a, in a, in a way that's very, very important. Uh, for anyone that missed the start of our conversation, this will be uploaded on both our podcast on Spotify and on the YouTube channel, links for which can be found on the Facebook page. Uh, and in terms of future events, we have a talk from David Booth, a senior, who is a senior uh, lecturer of biology at Dundee University on the 9th of March. We have the following week on the 16th, a talk, a Q&A with Richard Dawkins on his books, and later that week on the 19th, I talk with Cosmic Skeptic, who is a fellow atheist and a YouTube cr content creator. Um, thank you again for everyone who took part tonight in this conversation. And I hope that this has made people think about how important it is, especially, well, especially in, in everywhere, but especially here to continue to defend our own freedom of speech and our own freedom of expression, because 
it's it's something that a lot of people take for granted in the Western world because it's something that we've never really had any experience with firsthand in terms of those rights or freedoms of expression being restricted in any way. So with that, thank you very much to everyone and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks everyone.